Uruboya, Ochicheo, tu Kellington. I'd like to welcome my friend Bobby Sanabria to my show here on WPKN, truly one of the good guys in the music world. Bobby is a percussionist, teacher, musician, multi-Grammy nominee, and leader of many talented Latin big bands and other configurations over the years. His album, West Side Story, we imagine, won the Jazz Journalist Award for Best Jazz Album of 2019. Besides his big band leader duties, Bobby is the host of the Latin Jazz Cruise on WBGO Radio always pushing the envelope on musical genres with an energy that is never duplicated by his contemporaries. I'd like to welcome here Bobby Sanabria. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Kevin. That's awesome. You know, Bobby, WPCAN is presenting a whole lot of on-air programming, films, and live performance in the area to celebrate Hispanic History Month. Give us your take on why it's important to take some time to recognize the achievements of Latinos and what do you want those listening to think about when they're considering the Latin contributions to our culture and society? Well, we got to go back all the way to St. Augustine <laughs> in Florida. The first language that was spoken other than the Native American languages that were here was Spanish back in the 1600s. So the Hispanic presence in what we call the so-called United States has always been there from the very beginning, before the American Revolution, before the founding of the 13 colonies. And uh, the contributions of Hispanics, Latinos, Latinas, Latinxes, whatever you want, titles you want to use, uh, has been incredibly immense. And the, the economic engine force of this country is driven by the Hispanic community. All you have to do, if you don't believe me, is go to any restaurant anywhere in the United States and who's the, who are the people cooking the food, serving the food, etc. It's more than likely people from the Latino, Latina, Latinx, and, or Hispanic community, as I said before. I'm just gonna use for the purpose of this interview, Hispanic. I agree. I was gonna ask you about the, where do you come down on that debate? It's the way Spanish was set up. Uh, it's it, it was neutral, you know, um, it's neutral the way when you say Latino, uh, depending on the context, it's, uh, you you know, that it's, it's a neutral word. So I don't, I don't like the term Latinx. It's something that imposed on, on us by, uh, uh, by a group of people that are well-meaning, but uh, I don't, I don't like the term. In fact, when I first heard the term, Believe it or not, I thought, oh, this is great. There's a new character in the Marvel superhero universe, Latin X. <laughs> I thought it was part of the X-Men. <laughs> and I guess they're going to have to change X-Men to X-Persons, you know? So, uh, but uh, whatever, uh, I'm cool with whatever term people want to use, as long as it's not offensive. That's the whole thing. Sure. If you don't like Latino, just say Latin. Right. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's a rich culture. I mean, there you're talking El Salvadorians and Mexicans and, you know, Puerto Ricans and Cubans. And it's just a, it's a, we're it's not, we're not, wild. we're not monolithic. That's, that's, uh, we're 22, there's 22 countries in Latin America. And I'm including Brazil in that. A lot of people exclude Brazil, but they are part of our multiverse. Sure. And, uh, I'm a big believer in the writings of, uh, the great poet, Mexican poet, writer, Octavio Paz, who said, our culture is a multiverse. It's like a gigantic salad bowl that uh, with all these ingredients in it, but you can see all the, the different colors of the ingredients, but we're all together and we all contribute to the great flavor in that salad bowl. I like that. I like that. So one of the big things that the contributions from the Latin community came came about is music, right? I mean, it's like it's hugely important to our culture. Um, when when well, you were when you started out, you became a drummer, you became a percussionist. And what was your influences? What made you decide that that's the path you wanted to take? Well, I mean, when I was growing up in the South Bronx, I grew up in the Morrow's Projects, which was a predominantly African American housing complex at the time. I grew up on the corner of East One Hundred Fifty Third Street. We're building their 681 Cortland Avenue in the South Bronx, which has a unique history in and of itself. Cortland Avenue used to be German, a, a big German community in the South Bronx. That's why we have beer halls in the South Bronx and beer manufacturing breweries 
in the South Bronx at one time. Well, to make a long story short, during the time period that I grew up in, I was born in 1957, you heard the sound of Cuban rumba in the parks during the summertime, from the afternoon, early afternoon, all the way into the late evening. For those of you who don't know what rumba is, I'm not talking about ballroom rumba, you know, when somebody, like the old days, somebody, you know, Mrs. Weinstein would go up to the band leader and say, hey, can you play a rumba for us? <laughs> <laughs> Which well, they meant a bolero rumba, or what we call a bolero for short a romantic ballad, but I'm talking about rumba, which is Cuban music played with just conga drums, voices, and dance. And so you'd hear the sound resonating through the canyons of the projects. When I was growing up in the summertime, Can you imagine hearing that all night? It was amazing. <laughs> then with people singing as well. And that brought together the African-American, the Afro-Latino and uh, community represented by Puerto Ricans and some Cubans that were in the South Bronx. And it brought together, for lack of a better term, whites too. Irish people were into it, Italians, Jews, uh, especially the Jewish community. They loved Latin music, particularly Cuban music. And why not? It's a celebratory music. It's a family-oriented music. And it's hip. Yeah, it was <laughs> very hip. Say? I mean, the amount of people in the Jewish community that has been so important to the development of the music. You're talking about people like Larry Harlow, the great Brooklynite Jewish, uh, the great salsa pianist, the, uh, the developer of the New York City power trombone salsa sound a Jewish person from the South Bronx, Barry Rogers, and many other greats like uh, Maxwell Hyman, who was the owner of the Palladium Ballroom from 1948 till 1966, the home of the Mambo on West 53rd Street and Broadway, which brought together all of the cultures, like I said before. That was the beginning, really, of integration, the Palladium Ballroom. Um, you had some blacks and whites mixing at the Savoy uptown in Harlem, but at the Palladium, is where everybody came together. Blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, gays, everybody, everybody. And that's important to point out that at that time, culturally, this was the hip thing. Everybody was doing this. The clubs were Latin music. And, and you know, I mean, that's where Fania All-Stars came out of all that too, you know, but it was, that's important, right? You grew up with that kind of energy where it was the popular thing. It wasn't just some side thing. Right, right. Well, in the 40s and 50s, which, when you're talking about the Palladium, which I said from 1948 till 1966 was the home of the Mambo, a block away was West 52nd Street and Broadway. Birdland, the home of progressive jazz. So there'll never be another time period like that because that was the vortex of, of the energy because you had the jazz musicians and the Latin musicians going back and forth, sitting in with each other. And we don't have that today. There was more unity amongst jazz musicians and Latino musicians back then, Hispanic musicians, than today, because we interacted on a direct, direct level. And the music reflected that if you listen to a tune, maybe you can even play it like Mambo Beat by Tito Puente. That's New York City, straight up and down. Big band jazz with a Cuban Mambo Beat. And cool. And the musicians are featured as jazz soloists. You hear uh, Joe Grimm on baritone saxophone. Doc Severson, who just retired. I believe he was 96 years old when he retired two weeks ago on trumpet. <laughs> and the final salvos, Maestro Tito Puente, native New Yorkian son from Spanish Harlem, El Barrio in Manhattan, on the timbales, and he wrote the song, arranged it, etc. It's a great example of what I'm talking about. Thank you. 
I grew up with that post Castro because we're talking about 1959, January 1st, when Castro comes into Cuba, takes it over. 1960, the U.S. places the trade embargo on Cuba, and then 1962, they place uh, the government places a travel embargo on Cuba. So the source of the music, uh, Cuban music, Cuba is cut off, and who continues holding up the banner, the flag of Cuban music in New York City, but with a New York attitude, the Puerto Rican community. Right. So I always say when people ask me what's salsa, I say, well, it's Cuban music playing with a freaking New Yorkian attitude. That's what it is. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. And so who was the biggest influence in that that time with that with what you're talking about? Like, can you name a musician for us? I can name several. You have Maestro Tito Puente, who was ubiquitous because he tra made the transition. I mean, you're talking about a gentleman that started playing professionally in the late 1930s. He's into the 60s, 70s, etc., and he's still a force of nature as a band leader, a composer, arranger, and a percussionist. He's a symbol of excellence for us. And then you had Ray Barreto, who played congas with Tito Puente from, I believe, 1957 to 1960, or 1956 to 1960. He became a band leader in the 60s and was one of the early signees to the Fania Record Company, which was founded in 1964 by an Italian-American ex-police officer, Jerry Masucci, and Johnny Pacheco, who's Dominican, uh, but loved Cuban music because the area that he was born in, in the Dominican Republic, heard Cuban radio all the time. So he played merengue, the national music of his country. But when he came to, as a youth, to the South Bronx and started interacting with more of the Puerto, New York Puerto Rican community, he really uh, embraced Cuban music fully, especially the charanga tradition, which is a Cuban style band with flute and strings. And uh, oddly enough, he played bongos in Tito Puente's band in the late 50s when Mongo Santa Maria and Willie Bobo, Mongo Ancongas and Willie Antimbalas left the Tito Puente Orchestra. Willie was playing bongos with Tito Puente at the time. They had been there for eight years. They left to go with Cal Jader, the great vibist on the West Coast, who replaced them, Ray Barreto Ancongas and Johnny Pacheco on the bongo. Johnny so was who was the who was one of the big Cuban musician influences on the you know, like the Puerto Rican community musicians? Oh man, well you're talking about people like Benny More, mm -hmm. the great Cuban vocalist, and his big band, and then of course the ubiquitous Arsenio Rodriguez. He is really the father of what we call salsa today. From uh, Matanzas, Cuba, blind. He was he, a black man of Bantu Congolese descent. He uh, played the Cuban tres, which is a guitar with three sets of double strings. So it sounds kind of like a mandolin. He was a master of it. And he started in the 1930s, a new type of band called a Conjunto. In a Cuban Conjunto, which is the format that he started, you have uh, two trumpets, uh, a pianist, which the bands that played Cuban song, the folk song tradition, which is at the root of salsa, never used the piano. They just used to use guitar and press. So he adds a piano, Lili Martinez. So that's really the first salsa piano player, Lili Martinez. Every pianist that plays salsa today and or Afro-Cuban jazz has a debt of gratitude and something of Lili in their playing. Hmm. And then he adds something very important, the conga drum. Nobody had used the conga drum in a dance band context before. It was relegated to uh, religious ceremonies and the Cuban carnival traditions.
haven't got Chano Pozo, right? Well, you got another supreme influence. Chano was a uh, conga drummer. He was a composer. He uh, he was a man's man, and uh, he was uh, he was like what we call a guapetón. He was like a bad dude, you know. <laughs> and uh, we didn't mess with him. And uh, great composer comes to New York City through the auspices of Miguelito Valdez, the great Cuban vocalist, who, who was the first to sing the song Babalu, uh, yeah, which Desi Arnaz made famous on his TV show, I Love Lucy, right. in the 50s. But Miguelito Valdez was the prototype for that song. Ernesto Lecorona wrote, wrote that. It, the song is about the Yoruba deity of uh, sickness. And he syncretized in the Catholic faith with St. Lazarus, San Lazaro. So that's what the song is about. Right. Anyway, Chano Pozo, through Miguelito Valdez, is introduced to Mario Balzar in Cuba. Mario was visiting. Mario was the musical director of the Machido Afro-Cubans, the first band to fuse jazz arranging technique and the power of the jazz solos with Afro-Cuban rhythms in 1939 in New York City. So Afro-Cuban jazz wasn't born in Cuba, was born in New York with this band. Mario was the musical director. He visits Cuba on a vacation. Uh, and Miguelito Valdez tells them about Chano Pozo. Chano meets him, and he's encouraged to come to New York. He does so. Eddie, to make a long story short, he hooks up with Dizzy Gillespie, and the rest is history. Chano comes to him with this idea of a song and starts humming out the melody to him. This is what I want. The saxophone, do this. The trombones, do that. <laughs> they starts off with... And that was Manteca. it out because he was a trained musician. Chano was what we call an alfabeto as far as being a musician. He didn't read or write music. So he needed somebody to translate all of his ideas to paper and Dizzy was the one that did that. Walter Gill Fuller also assisted in writing the arrangement. Dizzy adds a bridge to the song and uh, <clears throat> the rest is history. And to this day we sing about Chano Pozo, we celebrate Chano Pozo. So he was a big influence as far as answering your question, who were the Cuban musicians that influenced the New York-based musicians, particularly Puerto Rican musicians? Hmm. There's a couple right there. Yeah, uh, awesome. Let's talk a little bit about just to touch on the Fania All Stars. What, what, what about their influence? They were very big in the '70s. Why did that come about, and what was their influence? Well, first we got to talk about the Fania Record Company. It was founded in 1964 by the aforementioned Jerry Masucci, who was an Italian American from Brooklyn, New York. He was an ex-police officer, but in 1952 he was in the U.S. Navy. And where is he stationed? in Guantanamo, Cuba. <laughs> and he falls in love with Cuban music. When he returns, he studies law at John Jay College. 
uh, he and on the GI Bill, and also he becomes a New York City police officer. Then he gets a job with a law firm in uh, Mexico, and then finally, uh, they uh, gets a job in uh, Cuba. I think it was a shipping firm or something that he rep that he worked with. But uh, anyway, he's working as a lawyer in Cuba. When Castro takes over, he, uh, he, oddly enough, he become Castro hires him <laughs> to work in the public relations department for this newly formed government in Cuba. <laughs> Can you believe? Oh man, that's a story. <laughs> uh, and and uh, in any case, Jerry would frequent a luncheon at diner that all the musicians would go to and the name of the place was called Fania and so when he leaves Cuba finally when you know what hits the fan completely he leaves comes returns to New York works for a law firm then he sets up his own uh, small business uh, his own small law firm and then he meets Johnny Pacheco the aforementioned percussionist flautist Johnny I've been recording for Allegre Records in the Bronx for Al Santiago, another native New Yorker. Al played tenor saxophone. He had a band called the Chacanunu Boys, worked locally in New York City. All the church dances, uh, high school dances, etc., nightclubs that featured Latin music. But Al found, had a record store on the corner of Prospect Longwood and Westchester Avenue called Allegre Records. And he formed a record company, Allegra Records. And Johnny is one of his artists. And the first album that Johnny does, Johnny Pacheco y su charanga, sells like over 100,000 copies in a month. Hmm. He just, it was incredible. Johnny subsequently records four other albums for Al. He's not happy with the deal that he had with Al. Al, unfortunately, was bipolar, so sometimes he would be firing on all cylinders and sometimes you couldn't get him on the phone. Hmm. So he was unhappy. And he meets Jerry and they decide to form their own record company with 5,000 bucks. And within 10 years, that becomes, they filled a vacuum that was uh, created when Castro took over Cuba. There was no more music coming from Cuba, no more bands coming from Cuba, etc. They filled that vacuum up signing local artists Johnny's the vice president, A&R guy, and chief producer. Jerry is the, the brains behind everything. And why do you think it blew up? Why did it because become they, so popular? Because the bands in New York were very hip. You had hip band leaders like Larry Harlow, like Ray Barreto, and many others. And Johnny Pacheco himself, who were influenced completely by jazz and Cuban music. And uh, they, uh, there, was a, there was an audience for the music, which was who 99% Puerto Rican in New York. dance bands too well when you have a salsa band it's a dance band they were very <laughs> they were very smart too uh they used that word salsa to market the music right. they most people in that time said yeah you uh let's go dancing to a latin club now when you say latin to me i i always ask what do you mean were we going to an argentinian tango club or a club that features colombian cumbia because I, I know what that means, but in New York City, Latin was the term used for anything related to what we today we call salsa. Be tango. <laughs> right. But in those days, when you said, hey, let's go da Latin dancing, you're going to a club to hear a salsa, what became known right. as a salsa band. Good marketing. So, right. So they realized that you can't call it Latin because then people don't know what kind of, specifically what kind of music is. You can't call it Cuban because everybody hates Cuba because of the Cuban Missile Crisis and Castro and this, that, and the other. And the predominant audience is Puerto Rican. So they decided on using the word salsa, which was an expression used by musicians from time and memoriam. Like, put some sauce on it. 
con un poquito de salsa. Oye, está tocando con mucha salsa ahí. You're playing with a lot of sauce there. So it was not a new term. It was not. But they used it as a moniker for the music. And from an identity standpoint, we were looking for an identity, Puerto Ricans in New York City. And we found it in that music. Big time. Big time. Right. And then we found it in another style of music that came about around 19, that same time, 1965, 66, Latin Boogaloo, which was R&B mixed with Cuban rhythms, like Guajira, Son Montuno. I love what Boogaloo. I, yeah. So the iconic Boogaloo tune is Watermelon Man by uh, uh, Mongo Santa Maria. So I like it like that, right? And also I like it like that with Pete Rodriguez, yeah. and Spanish and it was inevitable because we Puerto Ricans we were growing up alongside our African-American brothers and sisters in the mm -hmm. hood so they loved our music the music that we danced to we loved their music R&B soul etc funk so it was inevitable and Latin Boogaloo is definitely the rhythm is Cuban but it's a New York City Puerto Rican creation Hips. no other way very to, hipster <laughs> yeah and there's no other way it could have been done now in terms of salsa it's cuban music with a new york puerto rican attitude but there are some identifying markers for example in new york the trombone became the ubiquitous horn identity marker whereas in cuba the trombone there was only one trombone solos generoso jimenez with benny more here in new york when barry rogers starts playing with joe cotto Uh, Puerto Rican team ball player in his band, and then he goes to Eddie Palmieri's band, which featured two trombones and a flute. Front line, La, the La Perfecta band that Eddie formed in the 60s. Forget it. That became an incredible identity marker for the New York sound. One of my favorite is Orquesta Rede from Cuba, where they did four trombones. <laughs> right. I mean, that blows me out of my seat when I play that. Yeah, you talk, and also Los Bambans. Yeah. They used three trombones. Uh, I think they used three violins or two violins and a flute. Yeah. So, I mean, but they're very much influenced by, they were very much influenced, in my opinion, by the New York sound, mm -hmm. especially by people like Eddie Palmieri. And then Willie Colon was influenced by Barry Rogers as well. And he, he was an all trombone band as well. So it became it became a, an identity marker for the New York Sun. We're talking to Bobby Sanabria, big band leader, musician, historian, a man who knows a lot about this subject. I'm happy to have him here. So you are influenced by big bands. Why did you choose big band as what you want to do? And who was it that influenced you to do that? Well, it was an evolutionary process because uh, many of your listeners know I have a group, smaller group called Ascension which is three of, well, at this point, it's just four horns. And I have a sexteto y piano, which is two horns. So that's all influenced by the hard bop movement of the 60s. And the bands like Ray Barreto's band, which was an all trumpet band, his conjunto, and Eddie Palmieri's band, which was two trombones and a flute. And the, the other identity marker of the New York uh band leaders that played this key, Cuban music with a New Yorkian attitude is that they treated the bands like jazz groups. They would allow the musicians to improvise. They would have spots in the music where the musicians could improvise. It wasn't just all the vocalists up front. So if you listen to the New York's, uh, the music being produced on the salsa scene in the 60s and 70s, you're going to hear some incredible arranging 
very forward thinking and the musicians featured as solos. You're gonna hear conga solos, timbala solos, bongo solos, piano solos, bass solos, trombone, trumpet solos, et cetera, et cetera. Just like a jazz group. So I was influenced by that. And I saw and heard big bands when I was a kid. I saw Tito Puente's big band when I was 12 years old. I saw Machito's big band when I was 12 years old. And that freaked me out. And, uh, <laughs> because I saw them playing in front of my building in a summer concert uh, that the city had set up. The other band was Ricardo Ray and Bobby Cruz, who were big on the Boogaloo scene, but they also played hardcore salsa. Ricardo Ray being a great pianist, Ricardo Maldonado from Brooklyn, who was Juilliard trained. But then I saw here the big bands and saw them on TV, like the Ed Sullivan show. I saw Count Basie, saw Duke Ellington. Uh, I saw Buddy Rich's big band on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, I saw great jazz artists like on the Hollywood Palace, that show. And all of the talk shows at that time, Dick Cavett, uh, who was David Frost, and of course, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson had big bands. The, always in the back of my head, I always had that sound of, of, uh, of, uh, of the big bands. And another thing that influenced me a lot was the cartoons of the day had big band music. All the Hanna-Barbera cartoons, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Johnny Quest, Top Cat, all had big band themes because Hoyt Curtin, who wrote the music, was a jazz pianist. Yeah, I never thought of it, but you're right, they did. Yeah. Courageous Cat, you know, <laughs> also. Yeah. It sounds like the, you know, it's like the Count Basie Orchestra playing. You know. <laughs> so anyway, I always had that in the back of my head, but I was always, but I was also influenced by jazz rock. John, um, John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Larry Coryell and the Eleventh House, the rock, the progressive rock music of the day. People like the Allman Brothers, Coco Harum, those groups. Yes, all of that was swirling in my head, and of course James Brown had a horn section, and then Tower, when Tower Power came on the scene, they weren't necessarily a big band but they had five horns and they sounded like a big band and chicago said, maybe chicago as well i had a poster of chicago in my bedroom <laughs> growing up in the south bronx so all that jazz influenced music was spinning around in my head and the sound of big bands so eventually <clears throat> i formed ascension while you know and i worked with all these great artists, Luis Perico Ortiz, the great trumpeter, I was Mongo Santa Maria's drummer and timbala player. Uh, I worked with Mario Bazan, the Afro-Cuban jazz orchestra for 10 years as the drummer and timbalero. So I had a lot of experience of playing in situations with a lot of horns to form what I now call the Bobby Sanabria Multiverse Big Band. We recorded in 1999 our first album, which was called uh, Afro-Cuban Dream Live and Enclave at uh, Birdland in New York City, and got our first Grammy nomination uh, in uh, 2000. And every subsequent big band album that we've done has been nominated for a Grammy. And the last one was that story reimagined, which was the biggest project we've done. Got the Jazz Journalist Association Award for Album of the Year. And we have a new album coming out next year, <clears throat> I've even made the band bigger. Originally started off as 19 musicians, then it got to 21. Now it's 24 musicians. Why? Because I added a, a, a chair in the orchestra just with that plays flute and piccolo. And I added another chair in the orchestra that plays electric violin because I was influenced by Quincy Jones, who always had a flute on top of a piccolo. If you want to get a reference point, listen to the Austin Powers theme. So Barcelona. You're tuned to listener-supported WPKN at 89.5 FM and online at WPKN.org. And you'll hear that with the flip piccolo up top. And then the electric violin from Don Ellis. 
something. Oh yeah, that's Don Ellis is one of your faves. I know that. I mean, yeah, yeah. he did yeah. some real interesting stuff playing the Fillmore. <laughs> well, you know, Don was the ultimate futurist. He got it. He's he sort of has gotten lost in the dust of time and in the shuffle. And many jazz history courses that are taught by supposedly well-informed educators skip over him. And that's, as my Italian brothers and sisters would say, is an infamia. You know, they should, he was, the, he was the ultimate futurist. And everything that, the whole entire history of jazz and what jazz and the future of jazz comes together with Don because he was an ethnomusicologist as well. He studied the music of all different cultures. East Indian music was a big part of his work and also uh, Afro-Cuban and Brazilian music. He played in salsa bands in Los Angeles. Hmm. I, I remember when I was in Mario Bazar's orchestra touring Europe and I was always called Masque Jode by the older musicians. Masque Jode is a derogatory term in Spanish that means the person that bugs you the most. <laughs> but I'm not going to use the expletive that okay. uh, I'll just say. But uh, so Rudy Calzado, the singer in the band, he go to be. Uh oh, here comes Maquejoda again. What are you going <laughs> to What are you going to ask me this time? <laughs> oh, nothing. You know. Yeah, but you wanted to know, man. You wanted to know. Tell right, me. Right. So anyway, he goes to me, you know, you remind me of this crazy trumpet player that I work with in Los Angeles. Uh, really? He goes, yeah. He came up to me one day and goes, hey, how do you play the Guido in 7-4 time? <laughs> and he goes, Rudy looked at him and go, he told me, he, I just looked, and what did you say? I goes, I just looked at him and said, listen, I'll show you how to play it in 4-4 four, four time, and you can figure it out how to play it in 7-4 time. And then I put two and two together. I said, oh, it had to be Don Ellis. And he goes, that's the guy. You remind me of him. <laughs> that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. Let's talk briefly about rock and roll. You know, I know the answer. I mean, what's the biggest influence on rock you think out of the Latin world? You know, I think I know the answer, but. You well, know. the influence on rock has been ubiquitous since the very beginning of what we call rock and roll, which came from R&B, which is the clave, which comes from Africa and got to Cuba and then spread to the other islands, et cetera, and then to New Orleans. And that's that ubiquitous rhythm uh, that everybody has heard in one way or another. Uh, one, two, whether they know it or not. Now, in Cuban bass music, saca tu mujer bandolero, saca la bailar. Saca tu mujer bandolero, saca la bailar. In New Orleans, drop the load. I don't drop the load. Pretty mama, I don't drop the load. And of course, people down south would say, shave, hair, cut, uh, two bits. Shave, hair, cut, two bits. Shave, hair, cut, two bits. Shave, hair, cut, uh, two bits. Shave, hair, cut, two bits. It's the foundation of all rock rhythms, funk, R&B. I said to get, 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 get busy, to get, to get, to get, get, get busy. There you go. There you go. So, <laughs> the problem is in this country, unfortunately, they keep us separate by 
not giving us that type of information and explanation so everybody is unfortunately not one nation but separated etc and really what ties us all together is that simple rhythm that i just tapped out so that means we're all related in one way or another so whether you know it or not so the music of led zeppelin okay is not too far removed from the music of machito and tito puente you just have to find the connections that are in there they're there but uh, somebody has to kind of guide you and say hey look you're you're not seeing the forest uh, through, through the, the trees. Wow. that in mind then the, the musician that must have overtly brought it all to our attention is Santana almost definitely yeah Carlos is very uh, important in the history of this music we've had superstars before like Richie Valens and others but not uh, another person that comes to mind Sergio Mendez of Brazil 66 he became kind of ubiquitous because the bossa nova hit so hard the united states in 1962 and by 1966 when he started that group it was just off the chain but carlos santana most definitely with his appearance at woodstock just changed the game completely because all of a sudden everybody started using congas even the grateful <laughs> even the grateful dead <laughs> Timbales, look at Earth, Wind, and Fire. They were directly influenced by uh, by him, and of course that generation of so-called hippies that had no connection to the great grandiose mambo era of the 1950s that the New York City Jewish community had, and Irish community, uh, and Italian community, and of course Puerto Rican community. Well. You're talking about white kids that... I was one had, of them. <laughs> yeah, that had no idea. I'm sure when Santana came out and all of a sudden they started playing at Woodstock and they seen the conga drums and the timbales and bongo and all the other percussion instruments they were playing, some of them were like freaking out. Sure. But of well, course... Yeah. And yeah. You know, they thought that uh, you know, they wrote Oyo Como Va, you know? <laughs> right, it was Tito Puente that wrote that the genius of Santana, you always, you have to have two things in this industry. You have to have, to be successful, access and advocacy. And who gave them that? Bill Graham. Right. A Jewish guy from the Bronx who originally was from Europe and survived the Nazi death camps. But at 10 years old, they at this uh, orphanage in France, I believe it was, they told him and his friend, what do you want to go, Israel or New York? <laughs> and they didn't know anything about either place. They they just picked New York on a whim. And he's one of those guys who won the salsa contest up there in New York. Later on in life, he was a big salsa fan. So he right. that's why he was so open-minded with the acts he booked into the Fillmore's. Right. He loved jazz. He loved Afro-Cuban music. Uh, he, won, he's, he said in his biography the biggest accomplishment that he's done in his life is was having won the Mambo Dance Contest at the Palladium Ballroom in hmm. New York City. Yeah, I read his and book. He, it's amazing. Yeah, and he was adopted by a Jewish family in the Bronx, went to D. with Clinton High School, then graduated with a business degree from City College, winds up in San Francisco, but he did a little acting as well. He's in an episode of Naked City as a cab driver. <laughs> he did some acting and then uh, winds up in San Francisco and the rest is history. He opens up the Fillmore West and then the Fillmore East, which now NYU owns that building. And uh, wow, I mean, what a champion for the music. He gave Carlos access and he gave him advocacy. So he... Uh, Michael Lang 
when he asked Bill Graham, I need you to help me with Woodstock because I know you know how to do this. And this is overwhelming. He goes, I'll help you, but under one condition, you got to put these guys on that I represent. They call Santana. And he goes, well, who's Santana? He goes, I'll the, give you cassette. The rest is history. <laughs> yep. And Michael Lang, who's Jewish, his father, I forgot the name of the club. His father ran a nightclub in New York City that occasionally booked Machido, Tito Puente, and Tito Rodriguez. And he wow. had seen those bands when he was a kid. And when he heard Santana on the tape, he said, oh, this is like the music those guys play, except it has rock organ and guitar. Like, <laughs> rock, rock guitar, you know? So, again, the cultural connections. Mike, what if Michael Lang had never heard that kind of music before? And he could have said, ah, this is too, you know, I, I can't relate to this at all. But he could relate to it because of that connection through his father. So it's uh, it's all about, as I said before, access and advocacy. And we, ne we need more access and we obviously need more advocates. So who will you advocate for now? You're out there on the circuit a little bit. Is there somebody new and special that we should be aware of? I advocate for everybody on my radio show, oh, including yeah. myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the radio show has been great. It's on WBJO FM, the number one jazz station in the country. And uh, uh, you can hear it if you're in the New York area on 88.3 FM. And if you, uh, uh, mo most, people, most people listen on the computer, WBGO.org, Saturdays from 4 to 6. And also there's an archive. The, ar the show is archived for two weeks along with the previous show. So for the archive, if you want to listen to last week's show, the previous two weeks show, you can go to WBGO, Latin Jazz Cruise, spelled C-R-U-I-S-E. Yeah, it's a great show. Amy Niles, who was the then head of the station, asked me to do it when Awolda uh, retired. Rivera, incredible uh, force of nature in terms of the history of jazz radio and Latin jazz radio. She had done it for 26 years and she wanted to retire. And also she was the host of Evening Jazz. So I said, they asked me, she asked me to do it while I was at a concert playing nice. for WB Joe and pulled me over to the side on a break and says, would you be interested? I says, sure, but only on one condition, if you let me educate the audience. And she goes, that's why I want you to do it. Great. So that was it. Uh, you're, you're, you do educate. It's awesome. That's why I love talking to you here. Um, but, you know, I'm going to push a little bit. Is there somebody new, youngster, that's Latin music, uh, or maybe even not Latin music that you're just really blown away with right now that, you, that we could? Uh... I'm not. I'm. Not, I'm not really blown away by any anybody because uh, I I see what what I'm blown away about. This is what I'm blown away about. I'm blown away about the fact that this there's all this incredible music happening. And the jazz community does not recognize it. Mm -hmm. You look at any festival across the country, any jazz festival, and there's barely any Latin jazz featured at any of these festivals. And when they do feature anything, they'll hire a salsa band, which is not a, a group. Salsa is dance music. It's not... Uh, featuring the musicians and as that's totally. because of the corporate influence or they're, they're just they may i mean well that happens you know in all the genres i mean in bluegrass and folk they're just not playing it because they think it's not commercially viable but there's a lot of great music being created right now in my opinion well in terms of this genre latin jazz i don't buy that argument because uh and i know you, i know you don't believe that argument either because the the latino population is so big now yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So uh, the and there's all these different forms that are in Latin jazz. So you, uh, I you you got groups combining Peruvian festejo rhythms. You got groups combining Colombian cumbia rhythms. You got groups obviously doing uh, uh, Brazilian rhythms uh, and and Cuban rhythms. Cuba and Brazil are the two major forces in terms of Latin jazz interpretation. But now this new generation of musicians who's been fervently studying jazz, who, who have been fervently studying jazz from a playing, a compositional and arranging standpoint, and they're from the different countries in Latin America, they're combining that, that those influences with 
their own uh, native folklore from their from their own countries. So it's an exciting time period for Latin jazz. But I would suggest that if anybody wants to uh, get more insight into this conundrum that I'm talking about, they get Chris, Dr. Chris Washburn's new book called Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz. He's the, the trombone player. He plays bass trombone in my big band. He has his own group called Sai Otos, the See You on the Other Side band. And he's a great educator and a great author. Uh, and uh, he makes the case as to why the jazz community has completely ignored uh, the contributions of not only Latin musicians to the history of jazz, but also Latin jazz. Mm -hmm. And it all goes back, we talked about this off mic, it all goes back to Plessy versus Ferguson. Way, way back, where is the one drop rule, you're either black or white, but there's no in between. There's no mulatto, there's no brown, there's no red, there's no, you know, so when we talk about jazz history, we're ignored. Or if we are uh, acknowledged, it's always a footnote. And -hmm. the basic example of that tragedy is the 18-hour documentary that Ken Burns did on PBS, where in 18 hours, there was nothing about our contributions to the history of jazz. Just, you could have done done a whole hour just on Machito (laughs) and the Afro-Cubans with Mario Bazaar. Yeah. And the hour dedicated to specifically to the Harlem Hellfighters 369th Regimental Band and Lieutenant James Reese Europe in World War One, that band, that all black regiment, and the band that was in that regiment uh, exposed European audience for audiences for the first time to black African American music through ragtime and early proto jazz. Well, guess who was playing Trump? There were guess what? There were 18 Afro Puerto Ricans in that band. There were 64 at full strength, the band. 44 of them were the one, were the, only 44 traveled with the regiment to play in the band. Of the 44, 18 of them were Afro-Puerto Ricans. And amongst them was Rafael Hernandez, uh, he, Sergeant Rafael Hernandez, who played as a trombonist. And what happens after World War I? He becomes Puerto Rico's greatest composer and Latin America's most beloved composer. So he's not mentioned in that one-hour segment at all of the contributions of those 18 Puerto Ricans. That's tragic. So that, 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 that's a slap in the face. It's tragic. It's racist. I would say it's racist. It's a new kind of racism. Well, it's, it's an old kind of racism reborn. The kind of racism where they ignore you that you're in the room. Mm-hmm. You know the old saying? If you're not invited to dinner, watch out. You're probably on the menu. well that's why we have this uh hispanic heritage month so we can talk about this stuff and try to bring it into the light and hopefully that'll get rectified you know and somebody will do a documentary or or you know explore those those influences from the past there's a couple of things coming out on james reese europe and i've been contacted along with my lovely wife elena martinez who's a tremendous folklorist and cultural anthropologist she's a, a leading light in 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 that those fields very well respected. Uh, we've been working with the 369th Experience out of Washington, D.C. with Stephanie Neal, and they contacted us way back. They do recreation concerts of the music of James Reese Europe and the, the 369th Regimental cool. Band. With, the band is made up of, uh, of students from historically black colleges, and, and amongst them are Puerto Ricans in that band. And they dress, they're dressed in full regalia in the uniforms of the day, playing that music, recreating it. And uh, Stephanie has been steadfast in making sure that the contributions of the Puerto Ricans in that band uh, are always acknowledged, whether in, a, in, in speeches given about the band, in the concerts, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been working with her closely. So Very she's, interesting. She's, she's supposed to be supposed. She should be commended. For that, you can check them out, 369th Experience on the on the internet. And tell and us Chris Washburn's book again. What's the name of it? The book is called Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz. And another uh, thing that your listeners can check out is a podcast by Michael Ambrosino called, produced uh, for National Public Radio, called Los Olvidados, The Forgotten Ones. 
and I was interviewed along with Chris Westman and many others there. Uh, and it's specifically about this topic. Why is it that the jazz community disses and dismisses the contributions of historically of Latin musicians to the history of jazz? And the fact that the pan-Latino influence in jazz is ubiquitous. From And it starts with the clave, which comes from Africa, obviously, but it comes through us, too, in Latin America. Absolutely. And, and it's kept and it's, it's kept a lot. It's been kept alive by us uh, throughout history. So I would check. I would suggest your listeners go to that. You can find it uh, online. Michael Ambrosino. And it's called Los L.O.S. Olvidados. O-L-V-I-D-A-D-O-S. And I believe Louis Palmales, yes, Louis Palmales has broadcast Los Olvidados as part of his show. My good buddy. Yeah, WPKN. Yeah. So, uh, Props to Louis. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And to Michael Abrasino and to Chris Washburn, because I've been talking about these things for years, but when somebody codifies it in a podcast and also in a book form, it's an amazing book, Chris's book, because it's almost like a lawyer getting up in court and making a case. And it goes all the way back to Plessy versus Ferguson. I'll put it on the list of things to read. I'm reading a lot lately. So, Bobby Sanabria, let's, uh, this has been great. And before we get away here, let's talk about what are you up to now? What's going on? Well, we just recorded a new album uh, at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola uh, this past June, uh, the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Uh, and uh, it's going to be called Vox Humana. Bobby Sanabria, Multiverse Big Band, Vox Humana. And I said that I expanded the band to 21 musicians with the vi- electric violin and the flute piccolo chair, but I've also added three incredible vocalists. So now it's 24 people <laughs> in the band, and that is Janice Siegel from the Manhattan Transfer, Antoinette Montague from the Ellington Orchestra, and this great young talent, Jennifer Jade Ledesma, who's half Dominican, half Puerto Rican. So she's on the recording too, and I think people will be surprised with this recording, it's a follow-up to West Side Story Reimagined, which we also record at Disney. But this features vocals throughout every piece of music on the album. And uh, Brazilian music, Brazilian rhythms, Afro-Cuban rhythms, funk, straight ahead uh, jazz, big band jazz. It's just an amazing album. And I'm in the throes of mixing it right now. So so I'm very... Good uh, luck with it. I can't yeah, I'm very, very happy with it. Uh, as I said before, I think people will be very surprised. And I just recorded with the Manhattan Transfer, speaking of Jasmine Siegel. And uh, I'm on two of the cuts of their newest album, which is, uh, I believe, in some respects, is it might be their swan song. It's uh, The album is called 50, celebrating their 50th anniversary. So uh, I hope they continue forever, but they might, you know, a vocal group staying together for 50 years is an incredible thing. So I did two cuts. I was asked to participate on two cuts playing percussion, a remake of The Twilight Zone that they had done years ago, The Twilight Tone, and also on this beautiful piece of music called Paradise Found. Alan Paul, who is uh, one of the principal vocalists, he wrote it based on Lex Lex Baxter's Paradise Lost. Okay, makes sense. So it's gorgeous, and it's in a bolero style, uh, and uh, I'm proud. Hey, we're going to go out with it. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So enjoy it, everybody. Yeah, thank you very much for coming, Bobby. It really was a pleasure. And uh, as always, I always learn something when I talk to you. Thank you. is the sound
since 